Welcome to PharmaTalk Radio. I'm Valerie Bowling. I'm delighted to share a presentation from the 2018 Integrating Clinical Research as a Care Option Conference on how to move clinical research into communities that would truly benefit from it. This presentation is given by Dr. Jonathan Jackson, Director of Care Research at Mass General, and Jim Kremitis, the Executive Director from the Association of Clinical Research Professionals. The 2019 Integrating Clinical Research into Clinical Care, otherwise known as CRACO, will take place April 29th and 30th at the Sheraton in Raleigh-Durham, North Carolina. Enjoy the podcast. Yeah, so um, I'm going to stand up and um, actually present some slides to you. I'm going to go through these quickly, though. I know we're short on time. And these slides are available to anybody that wants them. Allison can get them to you, so just drop her an email. I'm going to share some data. Um, and then talk about uh, what I perceive as some of the interesting elements of the industry today relative to bringing in new investigators and clinical researchers in general. Um, just very quickly, for those of you that don't m know me, most of my career was at Eli Lilly. Uh, I then left and worked at a couple different CROs, and I just started with ACRP about uh, two or three years ago. <clears throat> and it's been a very, very enlightening experience for me personally to get involved with ACRP, and I'll, I'll tell you why. Our membership, we've got about 13,000 people, and our membership is mainly what I think of as the grassroots implementers of clinical research. They're PIs, coordinators, also the people that are the first ones who audit the data, i.e. the site monitors or CRAs. Um, we've got people literally all over the world, but most of our membership is in North America, just to, to keep it straight. We're a not-for-profit, and we've been around for over 40 years. Our mission is really excellence in clinical research. It's very, very important. And we feel like there's a huge opportunity to improve the quality of clinical research. And I'll share some data with you. Um, one of the things that we do is we certify various professionals, again, the grassroots folks. So CRAs, CRCs, PIs, and we just recently introduced a new certification for certified professional. The reason we introduce that is we're seeing the roles of clinical researchers morphing. So what used to be a CRA is now maybe a data-oriented CRA, or a site monitor CRA, or a site relationship management type of CRA. Uh, same thing is happening in the CRC ranks. We're seeing larger institutions having QA type of CRAs, or even data analyst type of, or, I'm sorry, CRCs. So there's, there's been a lot of churn and change uh, in the various roles, and we feel like that's going to continue. So we thought it, we better have a broad base type of a, a certification. All right. Now, this is what's really interesting about the time in history that, that we exist today. There is a lot of change going on, and that's been obvious by this conference along with many others. And you've got organizations that are driving process improvement initiatives and trying to standardize processes. People like CTTI, the Clinical Trial Transformation Initiative, people like Transcelerate, um, and other groups as well. NIH is doing things, uh, sponsors are doing things, CROs are doing things for process improvement. And this is hard to read, but on the right it says technology in that yellow circle. There's a lot of new technology, we all know this, in terms of mobile technology, way you're, the ways you're capturing data, et cetera. Um, but the piece that seems to be overlooked most, most frequently is the third most important part of driving organizational or enterprise change, and that's people. And so we're here to, to represent the workforce and how we bring the workforce of clinical research along with the changes that are occurring, right? Because we can't, somebody's got to do the job. And yes, the job is changing, but somebody's got to help 
make that transition take place. So we're working closely, as closely as we can with Transcelerate, other technology providers, et cetera, to help make sure that the people in the field are ready to accept the changes that are coming or that have come. Um, now I'm gonna talk a little bit about getting into clinical research and this idea, you know, I don't mean to be a naysayer, but I just wanna put a little dose of reality into the equation here. It's not easy to become a PI. It's a completely different way of looking at the world. And so I wanted to share just a little bit. This data comes from Ken Getz and the Tufts uh, group. Bottom line here is there's a lot more in terms of complexity around protocol design and, and implementing protocols. Secondly, even if you've got that down, look at all the amendments and change orders that come along. So things change even during the course of the trial, so unanticipated issues. Then you've got the reality of doing feasibility as a, as a uh, investigator, and the, the fact of the matter is they're usually wrong. You know, most people, it's hard to forecast. Even if you're a professional forecaster, it's very difficult to forecast, and so we're often behind on enrollment. Uh, and now, this is probably the most important slide, and you may have seen this already, but if you look at the number of investigators filing unique 1572s over time, we're actually seeing a growth in investigators. The problem is, if you look over to the right, 52% of them only do one trial. So why is that? My personal opinion is it's because it's not the same as clinical practice. So when someone becomes a clinical researcher, you need to know what you're doing when you get into it, otherwise you're gonna lose money and you're probably gonna wanna drop out. Um, now here's another thing that's interesting. If you look at the quality of the, the performance over time, this is FDA inspection findings in 2013, here's 2014, here's 2015. Let me do that again, 14, 13, 14, 15. You see anything change except the last digit on the year? You get my point? We've got all kinds of great new tools. People have to implement them in order for these things to get better. So it's all about how we can in, enhance the workforce and how we drive change in the workforce that, we're, that, that are, again, the grassroots implementers. Um, so basically where we are today, things are getting much more complicated. Um, there's slow growth, there's slow growth in investigators that are staying in the game. Uh, we've got increased expense, increased complexity, slower timelines, there's still tons of issues around quality. Uh, we, and, and then on top of it, we've got new technology and new processes coming in. So we feel very strongly that this idea of focusing on the workforce is something that's been overlooked and needs to be uh, examined. So just some quick advice for new investigators. By the way, it was interesting, uh, your, Jeff, your comment when you opened the session today about there's not often a mix of clinicians with clinical researchers, right? I've, I've gone and presented at a couple different, uh, like the, the American Urology Association. I think we had maybe 15 people show up. Um, I recently presented the National Hispanic Medical Association. There were like 1,500 people at this conference. We had three people in our session. I mean, it's just, there's an issue in terms of the understanding of the, the clinical practice and clinical research. And I absolutely agree that there needs to be some merging there and some better communication. So, so but if you're going to be an investigator, as we talk to these people to try to bring them in, I feel like this is important information. First of all, just because you're a professional, just because you're a doctor or a nurse, does not mean you're gonna be a good clinical researcher. And that's important, it's very important. But historically, that's the assumption we've had as an industry, I think. 
Um, complexity is getting uh, even higher, rising costs, all these new changes that are driving things, and the roles themselves are changing. So there's a, lot of, there's a lot of ambiguity and change in the system right now that makes it even more complicated for somebody to come in fresh and just jump in and start doing it. Now, we participated with the group, uh, they, they were mentioned earlier today, MRCT, the multi, what was it, multi-clinical? Multi-regional clinical trial center. Thank you, sir. <laughs> yeah, which was a group of uh, folks out of Harvard along with a, a lot of other stakeholders. ACRP was one of the organizations involved. These are the eight competency domains of a clinical researcher. Now, these are very high level. I do want to point one out, though, based on the, the previous conversation. Communication and teamwork, very important. So these domains, we've been taking these and applying them at the job level. So we've done it for CRAs, and we've taken it down to study coordinators as well. We feel very strongly that these need to become the standard in the industry for the folks that are in those particular roles. Uh, so you'll see more to come on this. <clears throat> but getting started, just quickly, you know, understand the difference between clinical practice and clinical research. I won't, I won't read these to you. I think we've covered a lot of this today. And finally, have realistic expectations. Make sure you're planning properly. Have a recruitment plan. Uh, this is my last slide, but I would say that it's, it's interesting some of the groups that have come and people I've talked to today uh, uh, Eligo is doing some really great things in terms of helping organizations uh, go from clinical practice to clinical research. There are other suppliers and, and businesses that are popping up similar to that. So there's, there's help. Uh, there's ways to be trained. There are organizations that can help you with staffing. And I think a lot of those are going to continue to grow as we see more and more of the uh, integration between research and practice. So thank you. Jonathan. <clears throat> Um, thank you, Jim. I recognize that I am sort of the last thing between you and the end of this day, um, so I, I, I won't try to take up too much time. <clears throat> uh, so I am here uh, on behalf of my research center, which uh, recently launched uh, late last year at Massachusetts General Hospital. It's called uh, the Community Access Recruitment and Engagement Research Center. And uh, the, the principal function of this research center is to um, try to quantify uh, the black box known as uh, recruitment and enrollment. Uh, basically, that, that anything prior to somebody signing on the dotted line uh, of, an, of the informed consent document, um, I think too often we treat like, a, like black magic. Um, just the thought that uh, multiple times today people have said, basically something to the effect of somebody found this clinical trial because uh, they knew somebody who knew somebody. Or um, somebody found a clinical trial because they just happened to have a primary care doc or a specialist who was an investigator on the trial. I think what that means is we, we have to recognize that our, our system of accrual is inefficient at best. Uh, and so we can try to increase and, and, uh, uh, the infrastructure and the speed of communication and the ease for people to say yes. But uh, I think at the end of the day, we have to recognize um, you know, just a couple of, of really hard facts. Number one, uh, we are weird. We're, we're the weird people. Uh, and the people who sign up for our clinical trials are also weird people. 
So that has, uh, I think, a lot of really important implications for the quality of research that we're collecting and the way that we're going about collecting that information. So what I mean by weird is not just sort of to take pot shots at everybody in the room, uh, but just recognizing uh, the fact that the average American doesn't know a single scientist. Just doesn't know even one. I mean, they might be able to name Neil deGrasse Tyson or Bill Nye, but you know, those two gentlemen aren't exactly shilling out for, for clinical research opportunities. Um, so, so the average American that we're talking about, the average person who might be interested in these opportunities has no idea that they exist. That's, that's our starting point. Um, you know, everything that we've, we've talked about today in terms of, of trying to build the infrastructure and trying to, to make it easier for, for primary care docs in particular is, you know, we're, we're basically fighting over, you know, a small percentage of Americans, you know, maybe somewhere between 5 and 8%. Um, if, and we, we, we talked uh, earlier in, a, in an earlier session about, uh, you know, one half of 1% of 3 million. What if we could try to design clinical trials in such a way, uh, try to design uh, the, the way that we reach out to primary care and the public in such a way that we could do one, uh, an increase of one half of 1% on 325 million? Um, so, you know, that's looking at an increase of about 1.6 million people to, to clinical trial opportunities. And, and I think that's significant. And, uh, and I think that's the scale that we need to continually aim for uh, rather than trying to um, uh, ease uh, connections and communications for, for people who already uh, kind of know what, what's going on. So um, if, if I can just sort of leave you with one thought today, it's that we need to try to work on designing our protocols, designing our outreach, designing our communications to try to reach the individuals who might be eligible for our trials uh, but would have, have no idea that it's an opportunity that's, that's available. And that's a hard thing to do. That's a really hard thing to do. So I did my, my, uh, my original um, doctoral training uh, in mechanisms of attentional control, which sounds really boring, but I think is kind of cool. Um, but uh, what you, that you means are, is that... Uh, you are a weird one. Uh, yeah, I am a weird one. Uh, so even within my discipline, I'm pretty weird. Uh, what, what that means is that uh, we, we have to recognize that there are things competing for our attention. And uh, just as a really clear example of that, um, I, I was sitting in the back of the room so that means I was sitting behind all of you at today's meeting. Uh, and I saw what you were doing on your computers. I saw what you were doing on your phones. Uh, and I'm not here to call you out, but what I am here to say is you guys are the ones that care. You guys are the ones that really want to do this. And if you can't necessarily, if, if you are finding that there are demands on your attention at your, on, and your time at a conference that's dedicated to making clinical research as a care option, then how much larger is the lift for the average person not in this room. So, um, you know, in terms of, of, of specific action plans and guidelines, I think we've had a lot of great suggestions. One suggestion that I, I, I want to, to particularly endorse or advance is, is the idea that we need to work on empowering individuals who might be interested in being involved. So that can, of course, occur at the primary care level. Um, but frankly, we, we need to work on um, providing information to, uh, to the public, to potential uh, patients and potential participants. Uh, but frankly, that's, that's going to be hard to do. We can't even get people to vote. So, um, you know, we, we had to sort of have like this, this big uh, election phenomenon that happened, and I'm going to leave it there to say nonpartisan, but um, it, 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 it took 2016 for people to kind of wake up and care a little bit more. Um, and if that is something that can really impact people's lives uh, in a very direct and very visceral way, um, then, you know, where's our Trump moment? Uh, 
what is it that we can do to, to empower people um, to, to either advocate for themselves or create an infrastructure that allows uh, people to have an advocate in the room so that we don't necessarily have to worry about the awareness problem, we don't necessarily have to worry about the trust problem, uh, because we are directly um, uh, pushing towards uh, these mechanisms of empowerment. So I'm going to wrap up there and uh, maybe, maybe Jim and I can kind of chat about these and, and other things uh, with all of you over the next 14 and a half minutes. Okay, so I have a question for you. So. Um Oh, golly, over the last maybe 15, 20 years, there's been sort of a, this tidal wave of growth of um, patient centricity. And, you know, it, it was talked about earlier today, you know, engaging patients in protocol design, engaging patients in what really matters to them from an outcomes perspective. Do you think that's having any impact? Um, so, again, it, it depends on, you know, your, your, your reference frame, to, to kind of use a, a term from, from physics. So if your reference frame is, you know, if we focus on patient, patient centricity, does that get, uh, you know, a higher volume of people in the door now compared to, to 15 years ago? Then, you know, I think you can make the argument that, yeah, sure, like patient centricity um, has helped. But frankly, I think what we are, the problem that we're facing now is, is scale. So we've got new opportunities for new therapies. We are consolidating uh, into clinical trial networks. Uh, we, are, we are faced with you know, opportunities to improve the efficiency in, in terms of, of spinning up these clinical trial opportunities. Uh, but we are not necessarily matched with a concomitant increase in the the scaling and the efficiency of, of recruiting people into our, our research trials. So patient, patient centricity is, is all well and good, uh, but I think it still falls short of the incentive structure that we need to build uh, to get uh, either primary care docs on board or primary care staff on board, and especially when it comes to, to reaching prospective uh, participants. Uh, I think we still have some way to go before we're there. Okay, okay. So another question for you. Um, it was interesting for me trying to, as we listen to the various presentations today, um, we tend to talk about clinical research as a catch-all. And the truth is there's different kinds of clinical research, right? I mean, an observational trial is a lot different than a, a interventional phase two study, you know, in a, in a deadly disease, for example. Yeah, of course. Um, and um, uh, it's, it's it, as people begin to or as clinicians begin to move into clinical research, do you think there's a specific path they should take? In other words, does it make more sense to start with the simpler type of trials and then move to the more complex, or do you think we should just let people jump right in into face, you know, the more complex <laughs> studies? Uh, well, I, 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 first of all, I have to sort of admit I, I'm surprised that you're asking me this question. I'm probably the least experienced person in this room uh, when it comes to, to clinical trial design and execution. But um, I, I would say that, you know, in, it is my belief that uh, there should be some kind of uh, mentoring or apprenticeship model um, in the same way that we, you know, we are trained to be, to be doctors or researchers, um, you know, and some kind of support structure that's involved uh, for, for budding trialists. So yes, it would be great uh, to, to have people uh, design uh, relatively simple interventions. And so in the same way that we, we kind of encourage career development at the at kind of at the K level or the F level, uh, for, for research where we are constantly telling people, you know, be a little bit less ambitious with your research goals and you'll, you'll get there someday, you know, that what you're trying to propose to do in five years is actually 25 years worth of research. Um, you know, I, I think having similar 
mechanisms in place would, would be great. Um, but frankly, I, I am worried that uh, we don't have uh, a good pipeline to attract new and promising clinical, clinical trialists uh, to the fore in the first place. Uh, and so, you know, obviously, you know, one of the one of the areas that I'm interested in is looking at uh, healthcare disparities and looking at the disparities of access uh, and inclusion. And, and of course, that's not just at the at the patient side, but that's also uh, at the investigator side as well. So, we 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 I think we do need to recognize that there are significant barriers in place there uh, for for budding trialists to have opportunities. Um, but to answer your simpler question. Um, yes, I, I think I would encourage trialists to, to kind of think a little bit smaller, um, at least at first. Yeah, it was, it was definitely a leading question, so I can make a point. Yeah, I, <laughs> I recognize that. <laughs> um, and, and actually, the, the point I'd like to make is it's been interesting to me, again, coming into this side of the business, um, to recognize that there really is no way that anybody has a direct path into clinical research. Um, there's, well, I've, I've interviewed, I don't know how many study coordinators, how many CRAs, and I've heard everything, this is the truth, I've heard everything from I was a trucking logistics manager before I became a CRA, to I was a shoe salesman, to I was the spouse of the PI and I became a coordinator, to, um, you know, I was a nurse and I, I was in, working in a research clinic when I was, you know, early on in my career. I, and when we look at the demographics of, of the ACRP membership for study coordinators, 17% um, don't have a four-year college degree. Another maybe 10% or so have a PhD, and then there's everything in between. And I think it's an important thing for us to recognize as an industry that there is no standardization in terms of what the qualifications are, how you get hired, how you get trained, what the career path looks like, and to me, that's a major problem because one of the things I learned through my uh, quality improvement initiatives at various jobs I held through the years is that the number one enemy of uh, quality is variance. And we have a huge amount of variance in terms of how we conduct clinical research. And I frankly feel like it's a real problem that we need to address. Okay, so I, I was wondering if I could ask you a question this time. Sure. Just kind of flip sure. it on his head a little bit. Um, so the, the title of, of our section is, is actually quite provocative, you know, about talking about moving clinical research into communities that would truly benefit. Um, you know, I think the first question that I would ask is, how do we identify which communities would benefit uh, from these clinical research opportunities? Because that, that sort of requires an assumption that uh, there are communities that aren't benefiting from the clinical, from the clinical research opportunities directly. Um, more so than perhaps uh, the, the clinical care that they could get as a result of the consequence of clinical research opportunities down the road. So um, how do we identify which, cl which communities need clinical research? Yeah, well, it depends on how you define community too, right? Mm -hmm. um, so we do, have, we do have pretty strong data that suggests that um, minority communities get fewer opportunities to participate in clinical research than the you know the the, the mainstream uh, Caucasian community, um, I think there's also financial issues. It was really interesting to me today. I, I didn't realize that Canada had better outcomes in cystic fibrosis than we did. That was that was news to me, and and the fact that um, the suspicion is because of access to care. Um, so um, 
I think that was what the intention of the presentation was. It's, you know, how do we begin to develop investigators and clinical researchers in uh, areas where there are poor and minority populations and or minority populations and how we begin to get those folks and get the data that we need to really understand how to treat them better uh, in the long term. Okay, so is your, so are you, are you in favor of a solution that uh, trains up people from these communities, brings them into the research world, and then has them maybe develop and deploy clinical research opportunities that, that better serve these populations? Yes. Yeah, that's basically it. And I, and I, and I think that's part of the reason why I think this, I, this concept of, of um, working with uh, clinicians who are practicing medicine and getting them more engaged and involved and at least understanding opportunities in clinical research so they can either refer the patients or actually become researchers themselves is, is really an excellent idea. Yeah, actually, I think that's, uh, that's, that's a wonderful uh, proposal. Um, I, I, I would have to say that I am probably one of those kinds of people that you're, that you're talking about. So I grew up on a farm in East Texas, um, relatively poor, did not have great access to health care. Um, I, I didn't have a primary care doctor for... I don't know, until I was like 17 or 18, uh, and then I needed to have one to, in order to go to college. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure that the solution is necessarily um, sourcing from those communities uh, in order to, to kind of surface researchers and research opportunities. I think that's a, a great pipeline. Um, but that does, my, my concern is that that does sort of put a, a little bit of the burden on, uh, on people who look and, and maybe think like me. Um, where we are potentially constrained in our career opportunities, uh, where we are looked at to uh, deliver returns, uh, in, in essence, uh, in, in trying to reach these communities of color. So, for example, you know, that, would, that would mean that rather than being a researcher who's interested in intentional control, I'm looked at as a researcher who could bring uh, people who look like me into clinical research opportunities. So how do we avoid something like that? Ooh, that's a good question. Uh, you know, that's not really the way that I see it, um, but I can understand why you would say that. Um, to me, what, what, at least my experience, and this is what I've been told, I, did a, I ran the patient recruitment group at Lilly for a number of years, and same thing at Quintiles. And what we heard a lot back from when we did surveys with various populations was, I would rather go to a doctor that feels and looks like me and has had my experiences. So that's the, that's the patient perspective that we've been uh, exposed to. Um, but I understand, I, I get your point, and I, I would agree. I don't think that it should put pressure on you. Does that make sense? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we've got, I think, uh, just a little bit of time left. Uh, did you want to open it up for, for yeah. thoughts from uh, the, the peanut gallery here? Or? Any questions? <laughs> <laughs> So going back to the comments um, earlier about, um, you know, how do you get people's attention and what does it take in order to get their attention, one of the things that uh, came up with some of the research we were doing with um, patients and trying to understand their comfort level with getting involved in clinical research, we've heard the whole uh, conversation around, well, I trust my doctor and um, my doctor uh, has talked to me about this and so then therefore I'm open to that possibility. What was um, actually very fascinating is um, we probably are not paying as much attention to who else people trust. 
and understanding how important those people are. So, um, for example, some people are extremely spiritual and therefore their church community is very, very important. And if there's somebody in their community that understands clinical research and really willing to unveil that and, and make that understood and, and talk about that, that's really important. Or the book club that you've actually belonged to for like five years and and you have a lot of trust in the the um, the what those people offer or even if it's um, like to go to the extreme you're in the Raptor Club you know and or the Harley Club or something like that and that all of a sudden you there's more credibility when there's somebody within that community that actually opens up the door brings in an outsider into that particular door and so forth. So have you thought about like research access and so forth? Is it like in the healthcare community or is it the community at large or how broadly are you thinking about that from an access point of view? Um, I'm, I'm happy to, to kind of take a first stab and then Jim, maybe you can, you can take it. So the, the way that I've organized my research center is, is very much uh, with the perspective that um, clinical research trials um, are, are probably not what's uppermost in the minds of uh, a lot of these communities that I'm, I'm trying to reach out to. And um, as I said before, at first when I, when I started this work, I was really interested in trying to increase trust or leverage trust uh, from, these community from these community leaders or stakeholders. And so I reached out to, uh, frankly, everyone. So, uh, Massachusetts is, is sort of blessed with lots of bureaucracy, so um, I, a lot of my early clinical trial work was, uh, uh, was looking at uh, prevention for, for Alzheimer's disease. And so uh, we reached out to church communities, we reached out to um, uh, federal, state and, and uh, agencies and local agencies that were uh, focused on elder affairs. We reached out to the Boston Housing Authority. Uh, we reached out to um, advocacy groups within um, uh, social, uh, socio, different socio-demographic levels, uh, racial and ethnic um, uh, advocacy organizations. We reached out to schools. Um, we reached out um, to, to local uh, volunteer organizations, pretty much anyone that you could think of. Um, we, we tried to, to kind of move that model of uh, leveraging trust ahead. Um, and, and I would say that it was, it was partially effective uh, but I think what we came to recognize was that, um, you know, trust is, is, is hard won and easily lost, and trust is actually a little bit more narrow than you might expect. So even if you have um, someone who is broadly trusted like a faith leader, um, you know, coming in and recommending clinical trials, um, it, it, is, it's still, it still sort of falls short of, uh, of what you'd want uh, in terms of you know providing motivation and incentives uh, for again the average person who might be eligible for these research opportunities uh, to move forward. So uh, you can sort of go in and be part of the health ministry of one of these large churches as we have done, uh, and we we don't see um, uh, you know much of a return on that investment. We don't necessarily see uh, people even indicating that they're interested in research, uh, much less going through pre-screening and screening processes, um, and so. What, what we've realized is that it's less about trust and more about empowerment and advocacy. So making sure that you've kind of, you, it's an end run around the trust problem. So essentially when we are talking about trust, we, we do sort of uh, implicitly ask and assume uh, the patient or the participant uh, to, to take a leap of faith. 
to sort of believe that we're not going to, to do anything that harms them, that to sort of believe uh, that we, we have their best interests in mind, um, so believe that they will, you know, that we will communicate with them. Um, if, you ha if you have a strong um, advocate model or a strong empowerment model, then the patient, the participant, never has to make any of those leaps. Uh, it never has to, that patient never has to worry um, you know, about whether you are acting in their best interest because they, they have all the tools um, at their disposal to, to know those things. And what we found is that an empowered patient is, uh, those are the ones that tend to be the ones that you can count on to be your ambassadors, the ones that you can count on to embed within uh, primary care practices uh, as, as champions of your cause. Those are the ones um, who, who can kind of who can kind of be your, your John's the Baptist, the ones who will kind of go out and, and preach the good word uh, on behalf of the work that you're doing. So we, we felt that that seems to be, uh, it takes a little bit more time, um, but we felt that, uh, that empowerment and advocacy uh, it gets you kind of more bang for your buck. And so I'm going to give a marketer's response because um, I played a marketer at part of my career. What you just described is grassroots efforts, and that's, that is a wonderful way and is actually the most impactful way in terms of building trust. Uh, but along with that, there's, there's a quote-unquote, what I'll call a brand image. And clinical research doesn't necessarily have a very positive brand image, you know, the whole guinea pig thing, and you, you've heard about it. I mean, I remember talking to friends, they'd say, what do you do, Jim, for a living? Oh, I help recruit patients. Oh, you try to get people to be guinea pigs. No, no. I try to communicate effectively with people about what the risks and benefits and, and you know, what they're doing for society, paying for it, et cetera. So the, the point I'm trying to make is grassroots works, but along with that, you have to have a brand image at a more macro level and everything in between. It's, it's what we refer to as an integrated communication plan. We're all part of that as we, as we talk to people and the, you know, friends and neighbors and things like that. But we also need something broader. And if, if you've looked at, um, most of you probably are familiar with Syscript. They're based here in Boston. That's a great organization. Anything you can do to support them because they're trying to get the word out on a higher level of the value of doing clinical research and participating as a volunteer and what that does from a pay-it-forward perspective. And it's very important that people understand that part of it, that it's not just risk. Yes, it is risk to themselves. Yes, there might be benefit, but you can't count on it. But if nothing else, you're helping provide data as a volunteer and paying it forward for somebody else in the future that might have your disease. And I think with that, we should probably close, huh? All right. Thank, Thank you so you much, everybody. everyone. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. The 2019 Integrating Clinical Research into Clinical Care, otherwise known as CRACO, will take place April 29th and 30th at the Sheraton in Raleigh-Durham, North Carolina. For more information, visit theconferenceforum.org and, again, theconferenceforum.org. Thanks for listening.